1: Hi, everyone. It's Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Today, our guest is Isaiah Thomas, an NBA Hall of Famer. In 1996, he was named one of the 50 greatest players in NBA history. He's a 12-time NBA All-Star, a central figure in leading the Pistons to -to back-to-back NBA championships in 1989 and 1990. And we get to talk to him about his early life, his career as a basketball player, his career as a businessman, a community leader and a philanthropist. Take a listen, I'm Jason Greenblatt, this is The Diplomat brought to you by Newsweek. It's not every day we get to hear from an NBA Hall of Famer who's also a successful businessman and philanthropist. Isaiah Thomas, welcome to The Diplomat.
0: Thank you, honored to be here this morning.
1: Thank you so much. So you were born and raised on the west side of Chicago. You're one of nine children, my my grandparents actually had 10 and 8, so I love big families. You were one of uh, nine kids raised by your mom, Mary Thomas, and as I understand it, you grew up poor. It must have been challenging for your mom to raise all nine of you. Tell us about your childhood a little bit.
0: Yes, uh, born on the west side of Chicago, six brothers, two sisters. Uh, mom and dad uh, were were married for for 23, 24 years, uh, in growing up in poverty. Uh, at that time, uh, there was the poverty line and then there's a the line below poverty. Uh, we were below poverty. And, uh, at that time early on, on uh, when I was born, the U S government was starting the, the welfare program. And, um, my dad had just got laid off from his job and, and for our family to get on welfare, a man couldn't be in the house. Um, And my mom and dad, you know, had to make, you know, some very difficult decisions in terms of, you know, their marriage, our family, and uh, to go on welfare. You know, my dad had to leave the house. Uh, My mom uh, ended up, you know, having to support us. My dad really just lived right down the street. <laughs> um, but it was a difficult time. You know, we, we moved around a lot, bounced around from, you know, place to place. Uh, I think by the time that I was, you know, 14, 14 years old, I had been to three grade schools and moved close to, you know, nine times uh, because of, you know, welfare and having to, you know, pay the pay the rent. But my mom was... You know she was a she was she was a trooper she she never let let that get her down. She always had a positive attitude. and um, we although we were extremely poor, we were very rich in love. and um, that's how we we kind of got through it
1: so rich in love, which is probably the most important thing any family could have, rich or poor. Um, that's a great way to say it. great great that your mom had that attitude and your family had that to hold on to. What was, uh, one of your happiest memories as a child?
0: Um, really just being in the house, um, you know, with my, with my brothers and, and sisters, uh, we, we didn't have, um, you know, our, our family was mainly our, our friends and that's still kind of the way it is today. Um, you know, we, we played together, we, we stayed together. Um, and just being with my, my brothers and sisters, um, you know, those are, those were happy times, you know, uh, rather be playing games or singing or, you know, trying to figure out, you know, different math equations or, (laughs) or, um, you know, multiple choice questions that we would make up, you know, those, those were the happy times inside the household.
1: Probably something we could all learn from today in our social media influenced, uh, too heavily influenced society. Probably something people could take to heart. So you grew up extremely poor, bouncing around, difficult choices your parents had to make, welfare. Tell us about the path from that to basketball hall of famer. How did that happen?
0: You know, I look back on that and I and I and I wonder how did it happen uh, because. You know, in my neighborhood growing up, um, you know, all my brothers played basketball. Uh, but during that period of time, uh, my first 10 years of life, it was a very turbulent time in our neighborhood. Uh, growing up on the west side of Chicago, I was born in 61. Uh, 63, Kennedy's assassinated. 65, Malcolm X is assassinated. Um uh, 66 there, the Chicago riots, Um, and all these things, uh, you know, impacted the West Side. 67, 68, you know, Kennedy and King is assassinated. Um, Then 69, uh, Fred Hampton is assassinated. Um, And so in in our neighborhood on the West Side, you know, there was, you know, three riots. Um, And when I'm talking about riots, I'm talking about you know, uh, have to have to, you know, community being burnt down. Um, and there was a lot of, it's a lot of unrest during that period of time. Uh, so we, we found, um, I guess, some piece of happiness and, and going to the basketball court and playing. But during that period of time, it was very turbulent. And, you know, so through playing, you know, out on the, on the court um, and then being involved in, you know, grade school, boys club activities, you found a way to, you know, find sanctity and sacredness in the game of basketball, which is what we are gravitated to.
1: Now let's talk about the your time as a professional player. Name one or two of the highlights from you being a professional player. So my listeners can understand what it means to be a player like you.
0: You know, I I immediately go to uh, winning back to back championships as a small player in the NBA. Um, Those are definitely the the highlights and the pinnacle of of my career uh, as a hall of fame player Um, to, to win in a game uh, and to dominate in a, in a sport where, where you're not, as physically as tall or less in weight uh, than than your opponent, uh, that you know that to me that that's the that's the most rewarding thing.
1: And in the mid '80s and early '90s, you helped to negotiate collective bargaining agreements for the NBA. You pushed uh, to raise the average salary, the average player salary, from about three hundred thousand to about one point eight million. And now you've been in business for about 30 years. Would you say that the negotiation of those collective bargaining agreements were sort of your first foray into the business world?
0: Um, I would say, yeah, those those were the, in in terms of the NBA business world, yes. Um, but looking back on it, if if I was to, to talk about business, you know, when we, when we all had, uh, Paper routes, and we were shining shoes, uh, and we were cutting grass. We didn't know that we were entrepreneurs at that time, and I didn't know that I was in the the waste removal business, uh, the the landscaping business, or um, you know the customer service business. Um, but in terms of dealing with NBA contracts, I would say that was the that was the first time of me. Uh, truly understanding the different business models that we have to operate in. Uh, and what I mean by the business models, um, the, the entertainment business model, the sports business models uh, are different than, uh, you know, a regular corporate business model. So understanding the different lanes that uh, these business models operated in uh, being involved with the Players Association, uh, becoming president of the Players Association, and then instituting the first salary cap in, in, in 1984 that is still in existence today, uh, where the, the union and the players came together collectively to move the sport forward and better the sport. Um, these were things that I, I was intricately involved in but also learned a lot uh, by being involved in these decisions.
1: Yeah, and you mentioned the job you had as as a kid, which I think is really important. I think parents and kids should take note of that, which we don't necessarily appreciate how much kids learn when they have those kinds of jobs, landscaping and all that. It does teach customer service, math, hard work, perseverance, and all that. So, you know, good point to bring us back into your childhood with that. After the NBA, what, what was your first significant business venture and why did you choose it?
0: Well, while in the NBA, 1992, I was the first player to be on the cover of Forbes magazine and also Sports Illustrated in the same year. 1992, um, my first venture was to uh, partner with a gentleman by the name of Rick Inetone. And we bought a company called American speedy printing, uh, which had 700 quick print chains across the United States. Uh, we took it out of bankruptcy, uh, turned it around and sold it. Uh, that was my, my first really big major, uh, move into, into sport. Uh, I mean, into, uh, entrepreneurship in business. Then 1994, uh, I became a co-founder, uh, part owner of the Toronto Raptors, the first international expansion team outside of the United States. Um, we were we were awarded the franchise. Started that in 1994, and thus you know, 25 years later, the Toronto Raptors won an NBA championship. The NBA started with two international franchises, one in Vancouver. One in Toronto. Happy to say that the one in Toronto still exists. Uh, one of the one of the best uh, expansion launches in uh, recent recent history, uh, along with the Miami Heat. Uh, but the Miami Heat sits domestically, but the Toronto Raptors is the only international franchise. Um, and then I I bought a popcorn company. Uh, well, started a uh, a popcorn company, uh, co-founded that, uh, it's called Indiana popcorn. And when you walk in some of your stores here in the United States, you see that red bag of kettle corn. Um, and it called, and it's called Indiana popcorn. I was co-founder of that company. Um, the red bag, uh, went to Indiana. That's the cream and the crimson on the red bag. And also, um, we were one of the first companies to start putting colors on, on the popcorn bags. Uh, it used to be that popcorn bags came in clear, uh, you know, see-through plastic bags that you can see the popcorn. We were one of the first companies to start putting colors on the bag. Now you see, um, you know, every, you know, every popcorn bag and most most potato chip bags and everything else have a variety of colors on their bags.
1: I hope you get royalties for that idea. <laughs> so today you're the exclusive U S owner and importer of Sherland champagne. How did you get into the champagne business and how's that going?
0: So I'm the, I'm the owner and importer of the champagne. Um, I own a hundred percent of Sherlan champagne, um, Went over to to talk about uh, buying the vineyard, uh, but they they won't let an American own land in Champagne. So through a course of negotiations with the Sherlan family, we own all the rights to the grapes that come off the land. And therefore, we're able to produce and give you the first press of the grape, not the second or the third press. The Sherlon family has been making champagne since 1788. Nine generations now, 10 generations of of champagne makers. Thomas Sherlon is actually all champagne maker uh, for all Sherlon champagne. And what we discovered when we went there is that uh, most champagnes that you get here in the United States are second and third press. And really, the third press is used sometimes for making vinegar and perfume. Second and third press champagne is very high in sugar. And what we wanted to do is bring a, a low sugar, zero sugar champagne to the United States, uh, thus finding our niche and then offering the first press. So with the highest volume producer of first press zero low sugar champagnes in the United States. And as you know, the first press is the best press. And what we wanted to do is make our champagne affordable to the masses. Um, The farmers and the growers in the champagne region wanted champagne to be exposed at the highest quality in the highest level and be for the masses, not just for the elite in society. So that's kind of our niche uh, in terms of first press Um, and also zero and low sugar champagnes is what we are truly known for at Chillon Champagne as the owner importer of the champagne.
1: And I understand you're also involved in the industrial hemp business. And I think hemp is an area that people don't know a lot about. You want to tell us about that a little bit?
0: So my firm, Isaiah International, uh, truly is a—it's an international firm where we we operate, um, you know, in a lot of businesses outside of the United States. One being in France, um, and, and also in Canada, and now in Colombia. In Colombia, we cultivate and we grow uh, hemp for industrial use purposes. Uh, we also, um, I'm chairman and CEO of One World Products, where we also grow uh, cannabis uh, and, and CBD uh, out of uh, One World Products in Colombia. Why did we choose Colombia? We chose Colombia to grow and cultivate in for the same reasons we, we cultivate and we grow in Champagne for the equatorial advantages and how they work specifically with the crop in the plant that we're growing. So in Colombia, we have 1.2 million acres of land uh, that has been granted to us to use, uh, to partner with the Afro-Colombia community. The Afro-Colombia indigenous farmers and growers in Colombia makes us an ESG company uh, that we work with. And, And with industrial hemp, what we're doing is working closely with the auto industry to remove plastics out of the auto space, infuse industrial hemp into those plastic spaces, thus reducing the carbon footprint of the auto industry, and not only reducing the carbon footprint, but also capturing carbon and selling carbon credits to the industry as well. Not only are we doing that in the automotive space, but we're also doing that in the packaging space. So in the in the hemp space, if you can look at anything that's made with plastics today, uh, five to 10 years from now, will be made with hemp because of the carbon reduction and hemp being the natural carbon sink.
1: So you mentioned carbon footprint. This is not the only environmental friendly business that you're involved in. As I understand it, you also own a recycling company with your daughter, Lauren, where you take PET, which is recyclable plastic, and you use some sort of microwave technology to transform the way PET is recycled. Is that a pure business play for you or is the environmental angle also really important to you?
0: The environmental angle is extremely important. Um, And and what Mother Nature has said, um, and I think now all corporations and countries are starting to listen to her, Mother Nature has said that if we don't change our behavior by 2050, then she's going to cause serious damage to the human population. That's not a, a company that's saying that. That's not a country that's saying that. When we talk about the environment, you know, I look at the environment as mother nature and mother nature has basically laid down her laws and said, you have a choice, human beings either you're going to change your behavior in the way that you live on my land and and on my earth, or if you don't change your behavior, then your species will suffer serious consequences. That's what mother nature has said. And so moving into these spaces, um, you know, we've always been environmentally conscious, but we didn't know what was coming down the road. Uh, and we are positioned properly uh, to to be in a position where we can help different companies. But when we started these companies, uh, definitely we were looking at the environment, but we wasn't we wasn't foreshadowing what would come. You know, ten years later in terms of how serious and how needed we would be in all these spaces.
1: One of my dreams is to work with my kids one day. How is it working with your daughter Lauren?
0: It is absolutely great for me. She would say it's hell for her. (laughs) (laughs) Um
1: we ought to get her on
0: this having (laughs) um you know having having a family business, you know, um with, with my with my kids and my nieces and my nephews, again, coming from poverty, the goal was to uplift my family out of poverty. And the best way my, my dad and mom taught us to do this was through education and also business. Um, not necessarily uh, always working for someone, but taking the risk and the opportunity to build your own, and work for yourself. Um, and what we've done in our firm, as you can see with all our different companies, um, we, we employ our nieces, nephews, uh, sons and daughters uh, from the family. Now, we also help them get through school. And part of their payback is, how do they pay back their student loans to me or the company is that um, after graduation they have to come back to the company, work off their student loans six months to a year, find one of the entities that they can work in, whether they find success in that they're in that they're interested in, and if they like it for a year's time they can stay, and if they don't like it, you know they paid their debt they can move on and, and go work, um, you know, and find another job in corporate America thus far. It's been a a successful model for us. And, um, you know, there's, there's some good days and some bad days, but, you know, for me as a, as a father and uncle, uh, watching them, you know, grow and have success and then us battling and having all different, you know, disagreements in terms of direction that the company should go. um, You know, that that's been rewarding, but it's also been turbulent uh, because we, we do have some, some knockdown, drag out, you know, fights about disagreements. But at the end of the day, the thing that I like is that, okay, you, yeah, you steal my daughter and you steal my niece. So where are we going to get some need at tomorrow?
1: (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like it's a win-win despite the knockdown, drag-on fights, and and educational at that. So you're also the president and alternate governor of the team New York Liberty, part of the WNBA, the Women's Professional Basketball League here in the U.S. Do you see the interest in women's sports teams growing, and can you see the WNBA franchise expanding overseas?
0: Yes, I see it growing in in. Uh, the overseas, um, there's a there's a natural relationship that should take place. Whether or not it will take place is, is another thing. Um, and, and I like to clarify, uh, we, we actually sold uh, the Liberty now is with the the owner of the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, and I am no longer uh, a part of the, the Liberty organization, although. Uh, We we did a good job for, uh, you know, mainly I think it was 20 plus years. The New York Liberty uh, was under the Knicks umbrella um, in Madison Square Garden. And then now it's uh, been moved over to Brooklyn. But the WNBA has a a bright future ahead of it. Um, It's had one of their, their best seasons ever. Um, I was instrumental in helping the San Antonio franchise that was, um, you know, all but dying in, in San Antonio in the WNBA. And I was instrumental in, with Jim Murrin and, and Adam Silver uh, to move that franchise to Las Vegas. And while I was with the New York Liberty, uh, I actually sent my whole management team there to uh, help facilitate uh, the inauguration in run the, the the Las Vegas Aces. Uh, Bill Lamber was my my coach. Uh, I sent him out to Vegas to to head up the organization. Also, uh, Dan, uh, who was my general manager at that time, sent Dan, Bill, and basically our whole staff out there to help onboard the Las Vegas Aces. And Bill just retired. And I'm talking, when I say Bill, I mean, Bill Lambeer, uh, he retired, uh, and they just, uh, end up winning the championship. And, uh, Becky Hammond came from actually the San Antonio team, uh, took over from Bill Lambeer and they won the championship this year. You saw Bill Lambeer, Becky Hammond, everyone celebrating. So, that was a good moment for me to, to watch from afar. Um, and, and I must say I have my, my hand in, in, in two, um, uh, franchises, uh, one in the NBA from an expansion standpoint, and one in the WNBA from an expansion standpoint and Jim Murren, uh, who was, um, CEO of, um, of MGM at that time, I have to give him a lot of credit for also um, believing in the WNBA and trusting myself, Adam, and everyone else to to bring the the WNBA to Las Vegas. And so I, I think the WNBA has a great future ahead of
1: it. And let's talk about community involvement. So you founded a program in honor of your mom called Mary's Court Foundation. Tell us about the program and why people should dedicate time to work with these kinds of programs. I
0: am, I am the beneficiary of so many and so much charitable activities and funding. I, I would not be sitting here today having this conversation with you had not someone from a farm wrote a check, went in their pocket and donated to some of the organizations that I was a part of when I was a kid. And and those people never met me, they never saw me, but here I am today because someone helped me get here. And what, what I do and what we do is always remember that, you know, you don't have success by yourself and those people who need the help the most who are really below the poverty line and may not have access to all of the information that's available to them. Uh, they may not have the time to fill out applications, fill out grants, and, and so we we, we reach back and we work with people who are really outside of the, the margins uh, to try to bring those people back into the system. Uh, uh, so you'll see us working with gang members you see us working with you know uh, heavily you know poverty stricken families, and sometimes you know the the help that you make and the donations that you make, uh, you know they they don't count as charity. I mean you you can't you know when when a mom has to pay her rent or has to you know get groceries for the next day, there's no time for her to fill out a grant application. <laughs> You know, um, so what we do is we just come in and assist right away with those families and needs. And, um, you know, we get great joy out of doing that because that's what happened to us as a family.
1: And you mentioned gang members. So you also play a role in Chicago's peace tournaments, which helps prevent youth violence. How effective do you think programs like that are with helping to reduce gang violence?
0: They're they're extremely successful. And, um, you know, we was the, you know, I I was the founder of the Peace Games uh, in Chicago uh, where we would bring um, different gangs from different sides of of the city uh, and have them come together, uh, compete in a game of basketball. And once they competed against each other, they found out, not only were they competing against each other, but they were actually playing together. And I have a master's in education from University of California at Berkeley. And my master's is specifically in sport, race, and culture. And bringing those entities together to have them compete and play, you know, you you find out that not only is there learning and playing, but there's culture developing, and then there's culture differences that you break down. And uh, our program now has been adopted in Chicago, you know, by a lot of different you know, organizations now who are replicating and doing some of the things that we did at the early stages. And I, I tell you one of the most enjoyable moments that I had, uh, it was actually two moments, one of the kids who came to play uh, had the had the ankle bracelet on he was being home monitored and he said he didn't want to miss the game uh, came to the game with his with his monitor on his ankle he's running up and down the court and you have the police in the stands watching him play you have you know city, uh, councilmen and everything else watching these gang members play. We broadcasted it, you know, not live over television. And the joy that you saw in these kids faces, they not only did were they had been looked at as criminals and murderers, but on that day they were looked at as kids and young men having fun. it was a beautiful day uh and fast forward the next year the two gang members who were really fighting with each other those two gang members the next year actually carpooled to the game together that's how powerful the games have been
1: wow that's very very impressive and inspirational so you've. This is the last question. I really appreciate your time. So you've had quite a life trajectory, right? Poverty to star basketball player known around the world, successful businessman, community leader, philanthropist. What would be a tip that you would want to give to my younger listeners about life? How they should think about charting their path in life?
0: The the, the tip that I I would give uh, you know is, is is try you know try to live with with compassion, love, and joy. Uh, Those three things, if you can put that in your daily values in terms of how you want to live and be, I, I think it will go a long way into your happiness, but also serving someone else and making them happy. I've had the unique experience that I think most, most Americans haven't had this experience where I've lived on the the bottom of the poverty chain and now I'm at you know kind of the highest of the of the the food chain in terms of opposites. Uh, you you so having experienced both uh, extremes of life, I have a very unique and different view of uh, than most most Americans may have in terms of experience. So these three things that I have, that I mentioned, you know, love, joy, and compassion. Those are the three things that I've learned through my journey that if I could, you know, impart wisdom on everyone is to try to live with those three things. And it helps you on both sides of the spectrum.
1: So I know I said that was the last question, but your answer sort of reminded me about something else, especially with the, your three key points of compassion, love, and joy. I think our country, uh, the U.S., and really the world has just become such a complicated, messy place right now. And one of the things I think is miss- that's missing is compassion, understanding, respect, especially on the international stage. And I'm reminded that you actually just took a trip to Abu Dhabi. Uh, a place that I know well. I'm very involved in the Middle East. and I wondered how you found going to Abu Dhabi what was it like?
0: Abu Dhabi is one of the most beautiful countries i've I've ever visited, and their culture that they're building there is is truly inspirational, I, I think, for the world. Um, you know they're their education system, uh, their teaching, uh, the the focus around gender equity, uh, the the international uh, acceptance of of all different cultures, uh, of all different nationalities, and you know the the one thing I always find uh, refreshing when I go outside of the United States is that I really get to signify as an American um, and I'm treated and I conduct business as an American. The only time that I'm classified as black or you're classified as white is when you come back inside of America and then you really realize here in the United States, the colorization system that we're under really divides us. Um, being being labeled as a color of black, white, blue, green, orange, yellow, purple, people of color, any color you choose, right? It's like a multiple choice question. <laughs> um, but outside of the United States, uh, you really get to classify and use your nationality and i would caution that the united states you know where we have lost our way uh, in terms of our values america was 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 the place where you came to express your nationality you know you were irish american you were greek american you were um you know, Polish-American. Now we are in a place where you're either black, white, blue, green. So the colorization that has really taken place here, in my opinion, is not good for America. And thus we have lost all committed responsibility to all values of being American and what American truly means american is not a color it's not a black white blue green and all colorization system needs to be adjusted where we can all classify again and use our nationality as americans and not a color
1: wise wise words i hope people listen to that hope people take it to heart Isaiah Thomas, thank you so much for joining The Diplomat on Newsweek. Really appreciate it.
0: Thank you, and thank you for having me.
1: What a great conversation with Isaiah Thomas. Really just very inspiring. I love at the end how he synthesized his most important points in life, is how to have compassion, love, joy, which I do think, unfortunately, so many people are missing these days. Isaiah sounds like such a humble guy, and it's quite a rags-to-riches story, growing up on the west side of Chicago on welfare, part of a large, very, very poor family, becoming a star basketball player, now successful businessman, giving back to the community. Really terrific guy. Hope you learned a lot from it. I also couldn't resist, at the end, asking him about Abu Dhabi. It's a place that I know so well that I also really uh, love. Great region that Abu Dhabi is a part of as well. Which reminds me, of course, my book is out, In the Path of Abraham, which has many of the themes that Isaiah was discussing. So if you haven't picked up the book, do so. Uh, you can go to Amazon and order it, In the Path of Abraham, or go to in inthepathofabraham.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek.